Hello again, this is Rabbi Jeff Sachs of Atid with another installment in our Jewish Educators Book Club. And today I'm sitting with my friend and colleague, uh, Professor William Kohlbrenner, who is a professor of literature, of English literature at Barilan University. He has an MA from Oxford University in England and a PhD from Columbia University in New York. He is a scholar of uh, the great English poet John Milton. Um, are, you, are you allowed to say that, Jeff? I, I'm allowed to say that. Um, uh, but uh, this, this book has, has nothing to do with, uh, with 17th century English poetry. Um, it's, a, it's a new title called Open-Minded Torah of Irony, Fundamentalism, and Love, published recently by Continuum, by Continuum Press. Um, uh, it, it evolved out of a series of short pieces that Bill wrote for um, for uh, for a blog by the same name, um, and uh, uh, open-minded Torah. Uh, it's a it's a good title. It's a catchy title. Uh, what does that mean, open-minded Torah? Well, I, I'm glad you didn't ask me <coughs> if open-minded Torah is a uh, oxymoron or a contradiction or a paradox, because to many it, it, it seems like that. And, and, and by open-minded, I don't mean the open-mindedness that sometimes passes off in, in, in a certain part of our own world, which is a kind of open-mindedness to absolutely everything, or let's say a lack of discrimination, because my book is not about a lack of discrimination. It's really, I, I think, about an open-mindedness, first and foremost, to the different parts and the different voices in the self. I mean, you, you spoke about the evolution of, of the book, and although people are saying today that, that blogs are dead, I, I think they can be used... They had such a short life. Well, we've moved on to things of, of you know, as, as I say, some of my kids will only read things of 140 characters or less. But, but, blogs, can, but blogs can be useful, and, and it was for me really in terms of, of finding my own voice. That is, really not having the opportunity or not having the chutzpah to just go and write a book, I started to write about things that were important to me or happening to me. And, and the blog was a means of, of exploring some issues that maybe I wouldn't have had the guts to explore otherwise. Mm -hmm. So that was really open-mindedness meant really first and foremost to the different voices in myself and being able to, to elaborate them and to express them and through that, those voices to become conscious of voices of others as well. Uh, the book opens with this uh, prologue. Uh, William Kohlbrenner is uh, called to the Torah as, as Velvel, as Zev. I'm actually not... In my neighborhood, I might be called to the Torah, uh, Torah as Velvel, but not as, I'm called to the Torah as Zev. Uh, but then as you're called Zev, uh, uh, called after your great-grandfather, uh, Velvel, uh, and the book starts with a little sketch of this person who, of course, you, you never knew, and, and he kind of becomes this, uh, this figure that's maybe looking over your shoulder a bit as you work your way through the issues in the book. So tell us a little bit about maybe that like, backstory. Maybe like Yosef sees the image of Yaakov, of his father, right, yeah. the image of his father. I, I, I saw the, the first time I saw the image of my great-grandfather was really in my youth, and we had the sepia-toned um, picture of the generic chassid. Velva was a, a gera chassid, and... Uh, he was really a picture of otherness, meaning on, on the mantle there was just this picture from a past to which I couldn't relate, or to which I couldn't relate. And, and, and subsequently, years later, I was searching through the attic of an aunt's house, and we found a m memorial book. In the 60s and 70s, these memorial books became kind of generic. They were written mostly in Israel, and in, in Hebrew, and in Yiddish, that memorialized communities that had been destroyed in Europe. 
and one of them was a town called Govorovo. This was the book that I found in my aunt's attic, and there was a picture of Velvel, and there it wasn't the sepia tone picture, the otherworldly, generic Chassid, but there was someone who looked, as my 14-year-old daughter said, it's you, Ava. I mean, she saw, she's very dramatic, but she saw in, in his eyes, my eyes, and there was that kind of uncanny connection. And that really allowed for a different kind of relationship to this past. And also he was a, a, a member of this community, a, a very well-known uh, family in the community for hundreds of years. So there were many essays, and the ones that I could read that weren't the Yiddish, the ones that were Hebrew, really described him. And this is why I start with the book, start with him in the book, is described him as being simultaneously the most pious person in the community. No surprise, he had very long pious but also the most, the most tolerant or open. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, you know, what a, what a model for, for the contemporary world. And of course, in our world, we think of those things as, as being incommensurate. And again, that gets back to the title of open-minded Torah, that these things are not incommensurate, right. that they can go together. Well, if, if you today uh, represent yeah. or at least mm-hmm. uh, aspire yeah. to be someone who can unite these two often disparate elements, these two elements that are often in tension with each other, yeah. that wasn't always the case, and your own path uh, to, uh, to be the author of, of this book has uh, taken some interesting uh, sideways and byways, maybe. Uh, what, 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 Rabbi Sachs, what, what is it that you mean by that? I mean that you uh, grew up in a in non-observant uh, uh-huh. background right. and uh, had uh, many experiences, and, uh, right. and both and in I, the uh, right. so general world and the academic world. And, and, and then maybe I, what I really understood is that I really went from kind of one I wouldn't say from one extreme to another because our path, the path of my wife and I, was not going from, let's say, you know, the university library to a Beit Midrash for the rest of our lives. Right. It was That's a slow and gradual path. But I do think we did... Bra- and you, you also have not entered the Beit Midrash for the rest of your life. You I, I mean, for a while it might have looked like we, 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 we might have. And I think to some extent, I mean, you talk about bringing these worlds together. I, I don't think that's a simple thing. And I think the idea of synthesizing, of bringing worlds together is, is, is something of great difficulty. I know that certain institutions base their reputations or their whole mission statements on that, that idea of synthesis. And I think synthesis is difficult. I think really holding many different kinds of affiliations and interests and perspectives in balance, I think that's, that's my goal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think along the way of our path, we may have bracketed certain parts of our life, the parts of me that, although I was always teaching Milton and Sophocles and Aeschylus, but I think as our paths evolved, we've been trying to reintegrate some of the worlds from which we originally came. I mean, I think maybe that's true about anybody's path. In order to become somebody who you want to be, you have to bracket some, some parts of your life. Uh-huh. And then in order to really... To, to reach a stage of maturity, you have to go back to that part of your life. I, I think that's, you know, it describes in some sense, since it is almost elves, it describes in some sense the chuba process, meaning we don't, we don't discard parts of our lives. I mean, we may reevaluate our relationship to the parts of our lives to which we may have felt ambivalent in the past, but a healthy person, a holistic person, as much as that's possible, is going to try, and this is really using your terminology, 
in some sense, them to great things. Right. Well, so, uh, one of the interesting yeah. things, if you yeah. if you take a little a little perusal yeah. of the of the of the index I'm, I'm of the book, I'm very very proud of my index. Right. So the <laughs> index, if you take, I mean, just looking, you know, randomly here at the letter S in the index, these are the names that appear. Jonathan Sachs, chief right. rabbi, who right. actually offers a very nice uh, jacket blurb. That's respectable. Right. Jonathan Sachs, Delmore Schwartz. Okay. Martin Scorsese. Oh, good. Scott. Svat Emet, uh-huh. or the Svas Emes. Well, I think the Svas Emes and the Scorsese go very well yes. together. Mm-hmm. William Shakespeare, who, who has the longest uh, entry. Uh, I'm not sure if Shakespeare or Milton has the longest entry. Sharansky, Sharansky. Philip Sidney, uh-huh. Joseph B. Soloveitchik, uh-huh. Sophocles, okay. George Soros, Steven Spielberg, Spinoza, uh-huh. Ringo Starr. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is... And then, it, and then if you keep going, you meet uh, the chapter on Denzel Washington, and of course... Uh, Moreno, Verabeno, Woody Allen, I, I Einstein, a, Dylan. Uh, I had a college teacher who used to speak very, very earnestly about um, having a classroom of all the great thinkers, you know, and, and being comfortable among Sophocles, Homer, and Aeschylus. But you know, the group of people that you described, I'd love to hang out with. Right. Well, precisely. Uh, the Dylan and Charles Schulz. But precisely, the question is that the discussion yeah. of yeah. synthesis and bringing right. together different right. parts of your intellectual right. worlds right. and your and your and your interests, and so often that conversation in the you know, in the uh, in the halls of you know, just right. for the purposes of a quick slogan, what I'll call Torah Umada, right. um, you know, is the conversation between the Rambam and mm. and and Aristotle. Right. Um, but uh, the, the 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 relationship here between what I'll you know, again, just for the purposes of quick uh, slogans, high culture and low culture. How does that work out? Both the relationship between the Torah side and the general culture side, and then within the general culture side between high and, you know, what's conventionally considered high culture and low culture. How does that play out in your own thinking about right. the current state of the Jewish community mm-hmm. and the issues that you're trying to advance with the, the essays in the book and the issues that are facing Jewish education and Jewish culture? And Jewish Jeff, I just think that's such a great question, and, and there's so many resonant things that you're saying. I mean, first of all, I feel really comfortable with you talking about these things. Sometimes I go to Shabbos tables when I'm traveling, speaking, and there's the great ringing praise for Torah Mada. And sometimes I want to pipe in and say, you know, do you really, do you know what reading Shakespeare is? Do you know what it means to, to read Sophocles? I, I think, as you said, the conversations about the relationship between the Jewish tradition and the Western tradition were on a very, very high plane for decades. And it had a, was a particular idea of what Mada is, perhaps a particular idea of what Torah was as well. But Mada was always this image of, as you put it, high culture, something that's easily assimilable, can be put together and integrated with the Torah worldview. I think what we're finding, especially in the world in which we live, and Atib lives and breathes in, is that our interests and affiliations are very, very complicated and complex and diverse. And reading Shakespeare, reading Sophocles, we're involved in this project, and I've been writing about Romeo and Juliet. How do we teach Romeo and Juliet to 10th grade Jewish day school students? I should, I should mention, yeah. I, I neglected to mention, yeah. that Bill is, serves as a senior fellow here at Atid, and we've been working this year on a... Uh, curricular project uh, related to the question of the 
literature curriculum in Jewish day schools and how it could advance the larger goals of religious education. Right, so that becomes a microcosm of some of the issues we're talking about. And, and reading Romeo and Juliet is, is, on the one hand, we can see it through the lens of pop culture and it's a love story, but it's a story that asks very serious questions about the nature of individuality, the nature of love, the nature of relationships, the nature about all those things in relationship to culture at large. These are serious questions to ask to 10th graders, and Torah Mata really is, in some sense, about placing oneself at risk. It may be that being a, 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 a person who's engaged with the Jewish tradition also means placing oneself at risk. But I think the metaphor, get, to get back to your question, really has to change from one of, let's say, this binary of Torah Mata to what are the conversations that we're having? And how, as a person who's committed to Jewish practice and Jewish learning, what does it mean to be in conversation with the cultures that are around me? Whether they're literary cultures, whether they're quote-unquote low culture. I mean, I'm going to see a Scorsese movie. Is that just something that's not really part of my life? Or can that also be something that's meaningful to me, that can be integrated in some sense to my identity as a Jew? I mean, again, I think... I really do think our identities as Jews are becoming much more diverse. I think really that's the challenge of our generation, to think about how this kind of plural notion of the self, or a self with many points of view, or perspectives, or affiliations, or interests, can continue to have that central or primary relationship. But in what, in what, way, in what yeah. way is, is Jewish identity becoming more complex? Well, I, I just think in the sense that we're being... I mean, you can ask it from two points of view. The defensive way of asking it is, we have all these influences, how can we protect ourselves from them? It's the story of Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai, and he would seek conversations every place. He would go over here, discussions at the laundromat, or whatever, where they were digging wells. He would listen for conversations every place, and I think it's that kind of engagement. Mm-hmm. Being engaged in the conversations that are happening around us, which are really important. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much closing off anymore. But it's also not that, as you call that high culture model, model of Torah model. Right. Well, let's take one example. Yeah. Uh, one of the chapters, the, 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 the book is made up of about 42, there's 42 uh, short short chapters. There's no, no, no Kabbalistic um, symbol, Smala, no, symbolism. No. Whatever. <laughs> um, and again, they, they started off as, uh, as blog posts. Um, but for example, uh, Oedipus in a Kippah. Yeah. So, what does Oedipus have to do with contemporary Jewish life? Well, that's the... My, my, I, I always imagine a, a production of Oedipus Rex at Bar Ilan, where I teach, which is a religious institution in Israel, which would, of course, get me fired from Bar Ilan if we actually <laughs> put the production on. Um, but Oedipus has a certain kind of messianic vision, as do many characters in the play. But Oedipus, I, I, I think we live in Israel especially, and maybe in the Jewish world in general, is a kind of a, 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 a country of, of Oedipuses with their own very maximalist views of what things should be like. Oedipus says, don't pray to the gods, pray to me. Or, I am Apollo's champion. I am the one who knows God's will, and I will enact it. Of course, this is why I joked about bar In a certain sense, that idea of embodying God's will was in the 60s, after 67, and the 70s, among certain segments of the Jewish population here, let's call them religious Zionists, was embraced. That is, we know what God wants, and we will enact it. 
But of course, the religious Zionists are not the only people with their messianic agenda. Secular people have their own universalist vision, which will come to pass, and which in some, in some sense, as open and as liberal as it is in many ways, there are certain aspects of, in, of intolerance. As we know, Israel is not the most tolerant society. And of course, the Haredim, or people who refer to the ultra-Orthodox, have their own maximalist agenda. That idea of a, a state or a public sphere that's more and more characterized by a coercive sense of Jewish law. So my sense in Oedipus and Akipa is that people have to kind of chill out and leave space for a public sphere in which we give up these strong notions of what it means to live in a Jewish state and open the world up, open up the possibility. Again, this is really a dominant metaphor in the book for conversation, where we can talk to each other. Talk to each other. I mean, that, that would be yeah. a, a message with uh, applicability mm-hmm. outside of Israel as well. Yeah. I think yeah. so, because we all have these very strong agendas. I, I mean, I, I think here especially, we tend to constantly delegitimize others. And very often, the stereotypes that we employ really justify that delegitimization. Mm-hmm. Haredim will say, for example, the ultra-Orthodox will say, don't have any concept of service to the state, and don't contribute economically. Now, I live in an ultra-Orthodox community, and although this is true, certain ideologically and among many people, I see that there are many people in my community who are thirsting for economic mobility, who have a very strong sense of identity to the Jew, with the Jewish state, who would love to embrace citizenship. And it's really the slogans, and in some cases, the leaders of the community that prevent that conversation. The, the essays uh, kind of take place on two different, uh, two different planes. Yeah. Uh, one is, you know, the larger communal, national uh, issues that you're dealing with that we've been talking well, about. Maybe philosophical. Or philosophical. Um, and uh, the other are are more uh, personal uh, that take place on the level of you, the individual, your own personal, spiritual, intellectual, religious odyssey, right. um, and, 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 and your family as well. Um, your son, your uh, almost nine-year-old son Shmuel, uh, has a Down syndrome, yeah. and that features quite prominently right. uh, in a number of the essays. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us how you see these two, the two uh, levels of the conversation right. going on in the book, and what role your son plays in it. Right. I, I write a lot about my son Shmuel. In my book, on my blog, in other places as well, and Shmuel is one of, of our seven children. And, and some people say, you know, why, why are you so obsessed with this issue? And I, I spoke before about the evolution of my blog, and I really started to write about Shmuel. And, and I think because the reason that Shmuel figures so centrally in the book is that Shmuel became a way of my seeing how... I relate to otherness and how I relate to difference. And more than that, how the Jewish community in which I live relates to difference. And I began to see a little bit of the disparity between the ideals that I know our tradition maintains and upholds Mm -hmm. and the way that gets acted out. And I think, as I often say when I speak about Shmuel, we often talk about typical children and non-typical children better than saying normal kids, right? Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have any normal children. I don't <laughs> know if I have any typical <laughs> children, right? But Shmuel is clearly atypical, and he is screaming out difference. But of course, all of our children are, are different in their own way. 
and, and Shmuel is like, he's like holding up the sign, I am different. And other kids aren't so much, but we burden all of our kids with expectations. And we burden, our community is so burdened, I think all of our communities are so burdened by the expectations that we give to our children. And for me, Open Minded Torah was a way of speaking about, he spoke about the philosophical, how the Jewish tradition embraces difference in the world of learning, so much so, in such radical ways. And also, Jewish life is theoretically a life that also embraces, reaches out to, cultivates difference. Mm-hmm. So Shmuel is just a way of my relating to that issue. I start with Velville as the image of an ideal past, and, and I end the book with an epilogue on Shmuel. There's also a chapter about trying to get him into a school in Jerusalem right. called Fear and Loathing in Jerusalem after Hunter S. Thompson. But I end with Shmuel because that's an image I, I hope of a future, maybe even the possibility of a present in which children like Shmuel or our differences can be more easily accepted. Again, open-minded Torah is about being open to the differences within. I think that's also a struggle that we find, that we can't be who we want to be because the expectations that our communities give us are so powerful and so strong. Mm-hmm. One of the things I, I find so interesting, I've been traveling a lot this past six months, Whenever, one, whenever I go into an LL plane, everything changes, right? Outside, in, you know, in the boarding area, you're still in Israel. Once you're on the plane, all of a sudden people are talking to each other. You have the Chilonit talking to the Haredi, right? The people who hate each other on the streets, on, on Rechov Yafo, King George. But once you get on the plane, like, things open up. There's a place of conversation. Again, I think I spoke about the Haredi who wants to have, to, to have a sense of, of service. I think also there's the chiloni, a term that I'm trying to get out of my family vocabulary, the so-called secular Jew, who feels a very strong connection to the state, a very strong connection even to the land of Israel, even to the Jewish tradition. And to be open-minded means to allow ourselves to be open to the parts of ourselves who we, exter- who we, who we can't necessarily um, embrace in, in the unambivalent public sphere mm-hmm. of Israel. You write a book. You yeah. uh, you work on it for however many years you work on it. And my my lifetime. You ask me. You know, right. My book doesn't. Have, of course, my book has everything to do with 17th century yeah. literature. Right. right. I'm a Miltonist. Yeah. But um, but like the children yeah. that we send off into the world, right. uh, you know, who are either all the same or all different, uh, right. or say, you know, all of one, thinking that the other. You send the book out into the world. Uh, um, and uh, uh, you hope it'll have an impact. So what kind of impact do you see, mm-hmm. you know, not just the book, but your whole project of trying to write and communicate, you know, outside of the academic sphere? Right. Um, who do you see the audience as the book? Uh, how do you think, how do you hope it will, uh, will have an effect? And, uh, and also for, mm-hmm. for our listeners, um, many of whom are involved in Jewish education, broadly defined, mm-hmm. how do you see it, uh, how might it be a resource mm-hmm. for those of us toiling in Jewish mm-hmm. education? Uh-huh. I mean, I, I think you know, it's interesting to talk about one's aspirations for a book. I mean, part of my aspirations have been fulfilled in that I get to have conversations <laughs> with you. Or like this with you. I would have had a conversation with you that. <laughs> We've had them. But this is a particularly good one. But, but I mean in the sense that I get to be exposed to other parts of the Jewish community and the people who I lecture to. Again, I, I hope in a couple of senses. One, that it allows for the kind of conversation of which we've been talking about for the past you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes or so. But also, I think in terms of a resource, I think... Open-minded Torah 
allows me or allowed me to articulate my voice or some of my voices. And I'm very much hoping really that, that the book allows people to connect to their voices. There's a very well-known saying, I think it's said in the name of, of um, the Arizal or the Balsham Tov, that there were 600,000 letters of the Torah and, the Torah, and 600,000 people who stood in Harsinai, and for every person there's a letter in the Torah. And that sense of being able to connect. And, and I think of all of the things that we spoke about today, and high culture and low culture, and implicitly also about social media, there's a desire for connecting. And I think in some sense, and this is a little bit of a paradox, that to connect metaphorically to one's letter in the Torah, and to say that every person has a letter in the Torah means that only I can really bring that aspect of the Torah into the world. That, and in order for the Torah to be fully realized in the world, everybody has to show their letter. Again, I think part of the paradox is that in order to be myself, in order to find out the full resources of myself, I have to connect outside of myself. Mm-hmm. So that's, in a way, what I'd like, I'd like to model in that book, and maybe would be useful, is that kind of dual connection. That is, that's very strong sense, that I think we all have in our generation, of selfhood, of creativity, of autonomy, of the need to be an individual, but basing that sense of creativity and autonomy on a sense of connection, and not losing a sense of generosity and obligation as we cultivate that sense, that sense of, of individuality. The, um, uh, in the title essay, yeah. Open-Minded Torah, in the yeah. section of the book that begins the, the title essay, Open-Minded Torah, yeah. you bring the famous, uh, the famous picture uh, from the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, where if you look at it, uh, it looks like a duck, and then if you turn it 90 degrees, it looks like a like a rabbit. I, I, that's from, I thought that was from Howard Johnson's menu. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and, and you make the point that, you know, of course, uh, it's, it only looks like a duck when you see it as such. Right. And everything, of course, depends on perception. So, right. so Bill, you, you embody the duck rabbit. Uh, uh, you, everything about you, every time I have the opportunity to talk with you, it reminds me that it all depends on on how you on how you look at it on 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 one at one angle you look like a typical Jerusalem Haredi at another <laughs> angle you look like a 17th century Milton scholar and when you sit and talk for a half hour you realize it's even more complicated than that so the book is open-minded Torah of irony fundamentalism and love from the Continuum Press available in some fine Jewish bookstores and uh, and spreading out uh, more and more both in America and here in Israel. Here in and Israel, soon in Pomerantz, and in America, on, on Amazon, and of course, uh, and of course on uh, on Amazon.com, uh, open-minded uh, Torah. And please stay tuned both for more upcoming conversations in the Jewish Educators uh, Book Club, as well as please stay tuned for the publication and the release and dissemination of the work that Bill has been working on here at Atid related to the uh, general literature, the English literature uh, curriculum in Jewish day schools.